Well, I remain very thankful um, for the concentrated focus we had as a church um, during our missions conference, eight, eight days that we set aside to give our undivided attention to the, the unfinished task that the Lord has given to us and invited us to join Him in of making disciples among the nations. Apparently, a number of folks in our church took that very seriously, and they decided to just go ahead and go. Uh, I know we got a lot of folks that are out uh, right now. I don't know if that's why or because it's fall break, but, um, but I, I knew that there was a number of folks gone today. But we're glad you're here, and uh, we can shame those that are not here. No. We, um, well, this morning we're returning to our series that's based on this 1,600-year-old creed, church creed. And the focus, the focus we gave to the Great Commission during the missions conference, it's not unrelated and it's not disconnected um, from the Apostles' Creed that we are, we're resuming this study this morning. So the Apostles' Creed, in many ways, was really born out of the early church's obedience to that Great Commission that we still have been committing ourselves to uh, to continue on in that and so jesus said go and make disciples among the nations baptizing them in the name of the father son and the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that i've commanded you and so baptizing and teaching as we make disciples this this creed came about because that very thing was happening and so in its in its earliest form this creed was actually part of this baptismal um confession that was made as as people were baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you can see that structure of the creed. But that's in its earliest forms. That's how it was used. And as it developed, it became a teaching tool for the church. This is what we believe. This is, this is what we confess. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's, it's not those things. It's this. And, and so th- that's, that's how these two connect. And, and so by way of review, let me just, a, a few reminders. I know we've been out of this series for a little bit. Some of you maybe weren't even here when we started this series. So uh, just, just remember that as we think about the Apostles' Creed, we, we, we use this illustration. It's like a zoomed out map of what Christians believe of the Bible, we could even say. And so it's, the, it's very broad, it's very selective, and so it's brief because of that. But it gives us key, core, essential Christian teachings. That's what it's, that's what it's doing. And so Al Mohler, we've quoted him before, and this, I've read this quote before, but he says, All Christians believe more than is contained in the Apostles' Creed, but none can believe less. That's what I mean. So it's this zoomed out map of the biblical terrain. And so we're not studying the Apostles' Creed as an end in itself. We're using it like that map in order to help us get oriented to the, to the terrain of the Bible. And this, is what, this is what we believe. And so, so each week through this series, we move quickly from the Creed to the Scriptures. And we're going to do that again today. And that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. But I do want you to see again the tremendous value of these historic creeds and confessions of the church, just like we see the value of maps. And, uh, and so that's, what, that's how we see these two connect. And so the word creed, it comes from a Latin word credo, which just simply means I believe. And this is the very first words of the creed, I believe. And so Christianity, we say, it's, it's a creedal religion. 
It's creedal. It's, by that I mean it's not primarily I do, but it's I believe. That's, that's the essence of Christianity. And, and in that, Christianity is different from every other religion and every other non-religion. But every, the, the, the world, it's different. Every other religion, every other way of approaching life is rooted in I've done in me and my performance. And so acceptance from God or, or whoever we're looking for acceptance from, it's always conditional upon my doing. If I'm going to, to show that I'm enough, that, I, that I'm enough, that, I, that I'm approved and I'm accepted, then it's going to be based upon my performance. And my doing is never good enough. But Christianity, the Bible says, no, we're accepted by God on the basis of faith in what Christ has done. And this is what we mean. And so almost and, and so we're we're confessing this is what we believe. Christianity is creedal. And almost half of what we confess that we believe in this creed, it concerns the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so we talked about this a few weeks ago. The the work of Christ can be divided into two parts his his humiliation and his exaltation. So even in this creed. As we confess together in His humiliation, we see His incarnation, His suffering, His death, His burial. In His exaltation, it's His resurrection, His ascension that we looked at last time. And today, His session. His session. And so this morning, we, we come to the, to the session of Jesus. The fact that Jesus now sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And you can see that, that this is lifted almost... Directly, almost verbatim, we're going to read in just a moment, Hebrews chapter 10. I'm sorry, please turn there. Hebrews 10, we're getting there. Hebrews chapter 10, and in verse 12, the writer says that he, Christ, sat down at the right hand of God. And so the next, the next phrase in the creed is going, to, is going to say that from that place, from that place of seated, being seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus shall come to judge, come again to judge the living and the dead. His future return. That's, that's next week. Um, and so between His ascension and return, we have Jesus' session. We're talking about the, the present position, the present work of the Son of God. Where is He today? What is He doing? Um, he's, ascended to the, he's ascended from this earth, but where is He? What's going on? And so that's, what we're, that's what's in view for us today. And the session of Christ, this, this, this may be somewhat neglected by us. We talk all the time, and rightly so, about the death and resurrection. And, and we, we even maybe talk about the ascension. But the, the session, it's not something we probably give as much conscious thought to. That's, that's unfortunate. But it's not neglected in Scripture. Uh, there are references to the to the place and to the work of Christ today in nearly every New Testament book, but but few are clearer than those found in Hebrews chapter ten, and that's where we're going to give our attention today. Hebrews chapter ten, and we're going to parachute in the middle of this letter. But I want us to be, go ahead and read verses one through eighteen together, and so please follow along as I read Hebrews ten verse one. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, makes, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices... 
there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for Me. And burnt offerings and, and, burnt offerings and sin offerings you have not taken pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings with, and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Listen, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put My laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Hallelujah. And so I realize, again, we're jumping into the middle of this letter, but the, but the Hebrews 10, it fits into this wider context of the book of Hebrews. And so... Without going into great detail, we just say Hebrews was written to these, these ethnically Jewish Christians who are being pressured, being tempted to go back to certain aspects of Judaism. And so they, they were tempted to live like, yes, uh, Jesus is good. We need Jesus. But maybe He's not enough. Maybe we also need to go back to dietary laws and add those things in and, and Sabbath laws and, and, and some of the priestly and temple rituals and sacrifices. Maybe it's Jesus and those things. We need, we need to, to fill out the, the picture a little more and color in the lines. Is that, is that the way it is? And so the one big argument that the, the writer of Hebrews is making throughout this very tightly packed letter is what? It's don't go back. Jesus is better. Jesus is enough. You, you don't need anything else. You have Christ and He's enough. That's the, that's the big message of the book of Hebrews. And so for ten chapters, He's powerfully making this case. Jesus is better than angels. He's better than Moses and the law. He's better than, 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 uh, than, than the, the, the old priest. He's better than Aaron. Better than the priestly system. No. And, so he, and then He's going to show the implications of this. This truth that Jesus is enough. 
And we'll see that connection. It's going to happen in verse 19 where he turns a corner. And we'll turn that corner with him. And so, for, so, so, so we come back. Where's Jesus today? What's he doing? And the New Testament repeatedly answers this question with this. That Jesus is sitting at the right hand. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, obviously when you say something like that, there were, we, we understand that this is what theologians, theologians call anthropomorphic language. It's ascribing to God uh, kind of human um, aspects and, and it's describing the relationship between the Father and the Son in, in, in human terms, terms that we can understand as human beings. And so we know theolo- theology 101, God is spirit. God is spirit. Jesus himself taught this. And so, so the Father, he has no literal right hand, or for you lefties, he has no left hand either. He has no body parts because he has no body. He is, he is spirit. And so how do you describe the relationship between the God the Father who has no body, who is spirit, and now God the Son, the incarnate Son of God who does have a body? So one has a body, one does not. How do you describe that relationship? And, and the, the writers of the New Testament, the, the God-breathed scriptures, they say it like this. They express it in terms we can understand as Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that communicates a couple things. That, that one, it's saying that Jesus now occupies his place of honor and authority in heaven. This was, again, we don't think in, in these terms as much as we talk about a right hand, that, that imagery. If you've been around the church long enough, you've probably heard messages on this. But, so you understand this, but if, if this is new to you, but, but, in, but these first readers, they got it. The right hand of a king, that, that was the place of honor in the court. This is, so, so this is where Jesus sits in heaven. R.C. Sproul said simply this way. In this exalted position, being at the right hand of the Father, Jesus is crowned King of kings and Lord of lords. All authority on heaven and earth rests in his hands. That's what's communicated by this expression. And the other thing it's saying, which is connected, is that Jesus now occupy, occupies a place of intimacy with the Father. A place of intimacy. Jesus has the Father's ear. He is he's sitting at God's right hand. This is the risen, the ascended, glorified Christ. He's now our man in heaven before the Father. And he, that's what a priest does. And this is the, the language of priest. A priest represents God before man. Represents man before God. And so the high priestly ministry of Christ today is largely a matter of this intercession. He's interceding before the Father. He's able to plead our case before the Father. With all that said, that's all preliminary. And what I want us to do this morning is that we're going to see in the text there are these past, present, and future uh, aspects to Jesus' session, to his, his present exalted reign. And so we're going to take those in a different order. We're going to talk about the future aspects, then the past, and then the present. But, so let's, say, let's look at the future first. First thing I'd say, Jesus' session, it points to the future resolution of history. And so it's looking, it's looking forward, which is exactly where we're going to go in, in our study of the creed here. So Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. Why? Well, in part, to wait. He's waiting. He's waiting for this planned future consummation of history. And you see it. You notice the description. He sat down, verse 12, at the right hand of God. And then what? Waiting from that time until his enemies should be, a made, should be made a footstool for his feet. 
We saw the same thing in Psalm 10, verse 110, verse 1, where it's quoted here in Hebrews uh, 10. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, the, the writer of Hebrews moves very quickly past this, uh, but he's assuming that they know what he what, what this implies. I'm not going to be so naive as to make that assumption this morning. So just quickly, when Jesus is told to sit at the Father's right hand and wait, there are a couple implicit implications, assumptions to that command. One is that Jesus will one day be acknowledged as Lord universally. That's, that's what's, what's coming. And so Jesus is waiting for the day when the Father will say to him, Now is the time. Now is the time. Go and assume your direct authority over the human race. So that day is coming. And so Paul wrote that because Jesus humbled himself in direct obedience to, to the Father and going to the cross, that God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2. That's not just blowing wind. That's not just filling space in, that, in this letter of Philippians. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. All the angels will bow. The holy ones, the evil ones. Every human being will bow, whether willingly or unwillingly. And so that day's coming. And so connected to that, there's, a, there's another uh, assumption here. Is that those who oppose Jesus' rule will be subdued by righteous force. And that's the meaning of the reference there to the footstool. Until I make the, your enemies a footstool for your feet. And so the writer of Hebrews just kind of strikes a glancing blow here with this. But, but don't miss this. We, we tend to think of it as, as it's shocking. That gentle Jesus, meek and mild, should do anything by force. But his patience, listen, but his patience through 2,000 years does not mean that he lacks the ability or the right to, to act in righteous anger against those who persist in rebellion against him. He will subjugate, he will subdue his enemies. And he's waiting until that day. There's this future aspect. Jesus' session is sitting at the right hand of the Father Almighty. It points to this future culmination of history. But that's not all. all right, second, past. What is it? What is, how does it point backwards? And so, second, Jesus' session points to the past completion of full atonement. This is the big, this is huge in the mind of the writer here of, of Hebrews. And, and so this is, this is big. The focus in this letter is on the, the perfect, sufficient, finished, completed sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's his big idea. We don't need to look to anything else. We don't need to do anything more to add to it or to, to supplement it. It was enough. That's his big point. And that's the gospel, isn't it? I mean, this is the gospel. This is what we preach. This is what we believe. This is our life. It's that it's all been done in and by Jesus Christ. We have been, this is the language, and I'm, I'm not quoting these verses in their entirety, but this is what, as we, as we read through this passage, there are, these are plucked right from these verses. We have been sanctified, perfected, forgiven in Jesus once for all. If we 
you're in Christ. And so in Hebrews 10, in the, in the whole letter, basically, the writer is emphasizing the full completion of Christ's atonement. And, and as Jesus sits down at the right hand of the Father, that's what it's pointing back to. That's what it's looking back to. Because that's happened, he sat down. And so just quickly, we, we can't look at, in great detail at, at all of these verses that we read a moment ago. And so I'm just going to do a quick summary. But in verses 1 to 4 uh, of Hebrews 10 there, you have, you have this emphasis on the insufficiency of the old, the old sacrifices. And so those old sacrifices, the languages you use, they're, they're but shadows. They're just dark representations of the real thing that's in Jesus. And so because that's the case, therefore, verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, these sacrifices were commanded by God, graciously given to Israel by God to cover sins, but that covering was never sufficient to take them away. It was never enough. There was, and that's what he goes on to say. They, they had to be offered continually, year after year, day after day. These sacrifices were offered because it's not enough to take away sin. And then he goes on in verses 5 and following there to, to contrast that old insufficient system with the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, singular sacrifice. And so just look at some of these verses, the, the powerful statements they make. Verse 10. By that will, that will of Jesus, that He came to do the will of God, to, to make sacrifice for sin, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Oh, that we may rejoice that Christ and His sacrifice was enough. Ah, oh, we got to get this. Too often, because what we we too often we we find ourselves like like the Jews who who th- that think that our religious deeds can overcome our sin, our performance, our activity. We this is how we can think. Even as Christians, we can fall back under this kind of performance-minded Christianity. We we sin and we think to ourselves, yeah, but at least I read my Bible this morning, or. We comfort ourselves to think of how, how much time and how good the time of prayer we had was yesterday. Or we're encouraged by our church attendance. Well, I went to church. So, so we can pacify our, our conscience in that way. Or we, or we do those things thinking that we somehow are making penance for the sins that we have recently committed. I've I got to get up and read my Bible this morning. God is not happy with me right now. And I've got to pacify His anger and so that will get him back on my side. We won't say it quite like that, but this is the way we think, isn't it? Can we agree? Or is it just me? Okay, all right. I'm going to go by the groans that it's not just me. Or we go the other way. And maybe for a while we, we kind of think like that, and then we go the other way, and we just despair. And we just we give up and we think, because we haven't done enough, and we can't ever seem to do enough feel like we're on God's good side. Anytime you trust in your religious performance, your religious works for God's approval, you're, you're like the Jews of old, trusting in insufficient sacrifices. But our sufficiency to stand before God 
doesn't come from our works, however righteous they may be. It is Christ. It's Christ. That's his point. He, he, he just keeps building this case and we, as we read this. Verses 11 to 14 there, the, the point becomes very clear with these contrasts that he sets up. And so there's this, there's this contrast in the, in the number of priests that there used to be. And, so, and, and presently as he's writing this letter. But every, every priest, he says in verse 11, there were thousands of priests. You walk into Jerusalem and just priests everywhere and get close to the temple. The closer you got, the more priests you saw thousands of priests and then he contrasts that to the one priest the priest the Lord Jesus Christ verse 12 it's, it's, it's that little uh, but he singular all those priests but he so that's one contrast then you, and you see the contrast in the number of sacrifices day after day after day after day sacrifices never stopped Jesus, he didn't need to offer many, 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 many sacrifices day after day. His one sacrifice was sufficient, was enough. And then you have this contrast in the the posture of the priest. That's the point of Psalm 110. That's the point of this, this, what we're confessing today in the Apostles' Creed, that Jesus is seated. But in verse 11 of Hebrews 10, every priest stands daily at his service, Offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. So, as you as you if if you read about the tabernacle and the temple and the, the instructions that God gave, there's instructions for all kinds of furniture and 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 uh, pieces of furniture that are in the temple. But you will not find a chair. You will not find a love seat, or a bench, or anything to sit on. There's no sitting. There's no rest for those priests there's no place to rest why because the priest's work was never done that's what he's saying that's the point of verse 11 here there were always more sacrifices to be offered up they could they could never sit down at the end of a day of a hard day and say well tomorrow there will be no offerings to make we can rest we can sit we can relax it's 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 done for a while even no, all they did was start over the next day with the same thing. No place, no, no sitting. But you see this contrast. But Jesus, on the other hand, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he, what, he sat down at the right hand of God. The priest, every priest stands daily offering the same sacrifices. Jesus offered one sacrifice for all time, and he sat down. That's powerful. His sitting is this picture of accomplishment. It's pointing us backward to the completed, full atonement that he made in his sacrifice on the cross. Notice again verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so again, this is pointing to that finished work of Jesus. We are complete. There's nothing more that can be done to add to our salvation. And yet, we who are complete, we who are already perfected, or already sanctified in that sense, we still see God's work in us going on through sanctification. We are still being sanctified. We are still being conformed into the image of Christ, being changed by God. And so if you are 
But, but this is what I want you to see, and this is what the writer is, is emphasizing. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you, you're sitting here. Listen, listen, please. You have been perfected for all time. You have been perfected for all time. You will never, ever, ever have a better standing before God than you have right now. It cannot be improved. You are enough in Jesus Christ. Yet, 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 yes, the work of of change and sanctification goes on, brothers and sisters. Yes, but God's acceptance of you is not conditioned upon the rate of that progress. You are not accepted before God based upon what kind of person you are. You are accepted before God based upon what kind of person Jesus is and what kind of work he came and accomplished. That's what this is saying. Amen is right. But we can so easily forget this. We can so easily get this mixed up in our minds. And this is why we need the exhortations of verses 19 and following. So hold on to that. We'll get there in a moment. Uh, just quickly, in verses 15 to 18, we, we definitely don't have time to, to linger here, but he makes the same point again. This time he's quoting Jeremiah 31, New Covenant. But, but let me bring us back to the focus this morning. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus, the great high priest, sat down because he made one offering for sins for all time. There are no other offerings necessary. The work is complete. Nothing can be added. Nothing can be taken away from it. And so, so this is what is session. It points to this future resolution of history. He's waiting until that final consummation that's coming when he returns. It's pointing to this past, uh, uh, completed, settled payment for sins through his one-time sacrifice for sins that was enough to to perfect us for all time. It's pointing back to that, the completion of atonement. And then third, Jesus' session points to the present activities of those who have Jesus as their high priest. The present activities. And so verse 19 is a hinge in the book of Hebrews. It's a turning point. Up until now, this letter has been focusing upon what we've been focusing upon even in Hebrews 10, on showing that Jesus is better than anything everyone who came before him and so the argument has been made now it's applied this is the so what and he begins verse 19 therefore because these things are true now he's sweeping up more than chapter 10 i think he's going all the way back to chapter 1 he's gathering it all up but it certainly doesn't it's not less than what we've been looking at here in chapter 10 which i think is a good summary of everything he's all the arguments he's making because these things are true including the fact Jesus is now, because he's, he's, he's made that one-time sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of the Father waiting for the consummation. Because that's true, there are these applications that come to us in this chapter. And they're all prefaced by this, let us, let us. And so you three times here, let us draw near, verse 22. Let us hold fast, verse 23. Let us consider how to stir up one another, verse 24 and 25. And so, just before we get into each one of those, we just say, you notice that is plural. Ah, you grammarians. You don't have to be a, 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 a 
you know, graduate level grammarian to, to see this. But let us, it's, it's together. I know we tend to think of the Christian life as so privatized and so individualistic. But this is together, brothers and sisters. We who hold this common confession, let us do these things. Let's look at them. And so the, 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 the completion and sufficiency of Christ's past sacrifice, the absolute certainty of the hope that we have in the future of His return, it does not lead to passivity. It doesn't lead to, oh, well, who cares then? Shall we sin that grace may abound? No, we're in union with Christ. We have been, we have been made one with Him and, 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 and Christ who is now seated at the Father's right hand waiting to return and we live out of that glorious reality by, gra- by the grace that we have. So what do we do? First thing, we come close. Come close. Verse 19 to 22, we see this. The command is in verse 22. Let us draw near. We're to draw near to Jesus Christ. That's, that's, not, that's not just um, we're to pray more. It, it's not less than that. Certainly it includes praying. And, but that, that's, that's not it. it. It is drawing. It's coming close to, to Him. I just think of, we use this language, and it's kind of an anecdotal comparison, but as, as, as in marriage, as married couples, we, we, we draw near to each other. How do we do that? We, we, we spend time together. We live together. We talk together. We weep together. We make decisions together. We, we share our lives together with each other. That's, that's the idea here. We, that's the call of the text. We draw near to Christ. We spend time with Him. We rely upon Him. We seek Him. We call upon Him in times of trouble. We cling to Him. We find refuge in Him. We rest in Him. We dwell with Him. We pant for Him. We thirst for Him. We abide in Him, as Jesus Himself calls us to do. And how do we do that? He, the writer says, with sincerity, with a true, with true hearts. With sincerity, not no duplicity. With faith, in full assurance of faith. Where we do so trusting and depending entirely upon Jesus alone. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. That's how we, that's how we do this. That's how we come to Him. And, and we come with purity of heart and life. That's God wrought. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Our bodies washed with pure water. The point of that is all of the conditions necessary for drawing near to God have been met for us in Christ. This is what He's, He does. And why can we draw near? And he answers it. Verses 19 to 21. So looked at the command, verse 22. Now back up. We can come close to Jesus. Why, brothers, since. He does twice in these verses. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, therefore let us draw near. Now try and, just try and, think of these words and read these words and hear these words through the, through the, the ears and, and the eyes of those original, original readers. To the Jews, this was absolutely shocking. <laughs> what? We, are you kidding? We have access to God through Jesus Christ? This is incredible. For centuries, the message was, do not enter. Do not enter. Do not come close. And now the message has changed. Come in. Draw near. Rather than a stop sign, you're now greeted with these open hands inviting you in. 
And we can now come in, how? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. If you've ever, I have hardly had any opportunities, but I've heard other people talk about these opportunities to go into highly restricted, secure areas. I've never had those credentials. Um, Some of you, maybe with your job, you work in a kind of highly secure area or or something like that. But if you're entering into a high security area, you you can't enter unless you have those proper credentials. And so first thing, you pull into the parking lot, there's usually a little guard shack and gates and and fence around there and so you have to you have to uh, show identification you have to identify yourself before you can even proceed into the parking lot and then to enter the building you probably have to swipe some card or security badge that's what they do on tv anyway and uh, in order to open the door and then as you walk through the hallways and the corridors of the building you have to have you have to have um, a badge on at all times showing that you are allowed to be there so if you don't have that badge, you, you, you're sneaking around, you know, wearing a coat, trying to, you know, act like you're doing something like this, trying to hide the fact that you don't have it and you can sneak around. But with the badge, you can go wherever you want, boldly. You can, you can, you know, you're, you're allowed to be there. You're supposed to be there. You won't be questioned by anyone. So it is with the blood of Jesus. We have credentials. Not that we've provided ourselves, but them given us by Christ. And we can enter boldly into God's presence, into the holy places. It's where we're supposed to be. We, we have it by Jesus' blood. And so Jesus, the one who comes close, uh, the, the one we come close to is also, he says, it's it, since we have this great priest over the house of God. So when we draw near, we, we have a friend who is on our side. We aren't drawing near to an enemy. We aren't drawing near to someone who might hurt us. We aren't drawing near to someone who is seeking our harm. We aren't drawing near to someone who might reject us. We aren't drawing near to someone who will just be annoyed by us and frustrated by us. No, we are, we are drawing near to someone who is for us, seeking our good. We are coming to our great high priest, Jesus Christ. That's, that's great. So we come close. Second, this will be quicker. Cling tightly. Cling tightly. Verse 23. The, 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 the command here is hold, let us hold fast. This is a key exhortation in, in the book of Hebrews. It's repeated several different times in, in different language, but same idea. And this is the big idea. Since Jesus is better, since he's enough, hold fast to him. Hold fast to him. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What is the confession of our hope? Uh, again, we, this, we're not in a study of Hebrews. We can't spend a lot of time. But just, just the, the confession in the book of Hebrews has everything to do with who Jesus is and what he has done and what he will accomplish. That's it. It's, 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 and it's this confession of, of Christ that's first present in our, in our baptism, in our conversion and baptism. And, and then it's the same confession that we're to continually cling to. We're confessing our confidence, our trust in Christ. Our confession of hope is that Jesus is all we need. He is enough. And assumed in these words, as you can see, this cling, hold fast to you, you can see you wouldn't use that language if it didn't assume that something was pulling us away. 
It assumes the storm. It assumes the wind. It assumes the, the difficulties. There's something trying to pull us away. Something trying to make us waver. And so we need to hold fast. And that is exactly what's happening with these early Christians. The context of these, these believers are facing all kinds of trials and temptations. There's, there's physical threats and, and, and re- relational, societal persecution. There's, there's this drawing attempt to draw them away back to Judaism. And so they're being mocked, they're being ridiculed, they're being threatened, they're being jailed, they're being beaten and killed. All in, this, in these efforts. So they needed to cling to the living Christ with confidence and assurance. Knowing that he will carry them through the day of trial. And we need the same. We're constantly bombarded by pressures and things pulling us away from, from our confidence in Christ and Him alone. We've got to cling to Him. And what's the foundation? What's the foundation of our holding fast? Is it the innate strength of our grip? Well, I've just, I, use, I got strong hands. It's been handed down to me by my dad and my granddad. No, it's not that. What does He say? For He who promised is faithful. The ground of our holding fast is the faithfulness of God to His promises. It's God's integrity. Our security is, is ultimately dependent not upon the strength of our grip, but on the strength of God's faithfulness to His promises. And so yeah, if you think of a rock climber and, and his security, the, what, what keeps him secure while he's on the face of that rock is the wind's blowing and circling around in that canyon and, and all that. Everything's trying to... Gravity's pulling him off. His ultimate security isn't the strength of his grip holding the mountain. It's, it's, the, it's the belay rope. It's the strength of the rope. He may slip, but that rope will keep him safe on the mountain. That's the, that's the same image. So hold fast without wavering because God's promise is so sure. Lastly, what do we, how do we live in the present in light of the fact that, that we know a priest, our priest, and he reigns, he's seated at the Father's right hand, having completed everything, having now waiting for the future resolution of history. How do we act? We cling to Christ. We hold, we hold fast to Him. We come close to Him. And finally, we kindle love and good deeds in one another. He turns sideways here. Verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Notice it's not merely enough to be engaged in love and good deeds, but God's call is for us to bring others along in love and good deeds, to stimulate one another, to provoke one another. Stir up one another, some of the translations may say. I mean, the, the, this is a word that the more common usage is in a negative sense. It's provoking. It's don't provoke your children to anger, that kind of idea. But that was the, the more common usage. We, we get this, rousing, rousing anger. Kids, you know exactly what this is, right? Some of you probably this morning, as, we've been, as I've been talking, provoking your brother next to you. You know, you, you just you poke him in the leg. And uh, first he thinks maybe it was an accident, so he doesn't pay any attention. You realize he didn't get the point, and so you poke him again a little harder, and see if you can get something. And he, you know, gives you a look, and then you, you poke him again, and then you get a reaction. He blows up, and so your your provoking your sin kind of causes him to react in a in a sinful way. That's so that's the normal way. But in this context, provoking it's a good thing. It's provoking to love and good deeds. How do we do this? How do we, how do we provoke one another? In light of 
the fact that Jesus is seated at the Father's right hand. How do we live? How do we relate to one another? Let me just give you some practical ideas. Just a few suggestions. Nothing rocket, no rocket science here. One, spend time with one another. I mean, you, you, it's kind of hard to do this alone. Um, so we have to be together. Live together. Second, study one another. Ask questions. Learn one another. What are, what are strengths, weaknesses, gifts? What, what, what experiences you've had? What, what, are, what, are, what are some ways God has used you uh, to, to serve and bless and, uh, others? And, and so observe areas where people flourish. Detect areas where people struggle and, and maybe need to grow. And think about, just think about people. Be aware. Third, commend, affirm one another. Um, when you see something commendable, honor, honor God by honoring them and telling them what you noticed uh, some ways in which you notice God's spirit at work in them and some ways in which that's been demonstrated. Man, I, I saw your, your love for uh, the, your the sister in Christ and, and the way you, you just moved in and met this need without, without even being asked. I, I commend you for that. That's, that's helpful. That's a, as we're building one, we're stimulating one another to love and good deeds. We, the other side, we correct one another. When we see a lack of love, we speak to them gently and encourage them in the right way. If we hear some uh, joke that's full of racial prejudice, I mean, this is just common in our day, and it shouldn't exist among God's people. We 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 correct one another. If you hear gossip or slander, or, um, those kinds of things, we 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 move in and correct in love. Uh, fourth, in, include, involve one another. When you, hear, when you hear of an opportunity, when you have an opportunity to love and to do good deeds, bring others with you to join in. Um, and let them, let them know that they have gifts that could be useful in this particular situation. And, and you say, man, I, I, you could really be helpful. Would you go with me? And, and let's, let's do this together. And let's, let's show up. Lean on one another. Fifth, um, just ask others for help in your own life. Be humble and say, "Hey, I, I could use some help right now." And I think I th- you 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 have you have a, a, a way in which you could you could help me. I don't mean just um, in physical things, but just I, I could use encouragement. Would you pray for me? Um, could we talk? Uh, also, pray for, pray with one another as you see opportunities to love and do good. Pray with, pray with, and for one another about about those things so i'm just saying i just don't limit it to that i just i want you to be thinking this is this is the stuff of stimulating one another to love and good deeds in light of the fact that christ is seated at the father's right hand we're not talking about a program issued from the leadership of the church it's just grassroots this is what it means to live as the body of christ in a local church and and we're called to this christianity is communal being alone is is a dangerous place to be um, for the Christian. And that's the point. Verse 25, we end here. He goes, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So if, 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 if this habit of some was present in the early church, I think it's, we couldn't argue that it's not even probably more present today in our society. And, and uh, I'm talking, of course, to all those who aren't here today. Um, you're, you're good. No, no. Um, but I just say that this is showing the importance of the gathering. Lord's Day worship is, is, is so important. Can, can I say this? And this will sound scandalous to some of your ears. 
the Lord's Day gathering is more important than your own personal Bible reading time. And what I mean by that, and this is, again, don't, don't misquote your pastor here. Um, for most centuries of the church, that was not even an option to have a copy of the scriptures at home reading it together. Were those Christians disobedient to God? Were they? No. Now, we have this great stewardship. We've been given this resource. Be a Bible reader. Consume this ravenously. But I'm just saying that this is essential. This is God. This is the rhythm and the morph of your life should be kind of in line with the Lord's Day gathering as we come together hear God's word preached and sing to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and take the ordinances together and we, we point, our, point one another back to Christ. We do this together. We, we affirm what we believe and our confidence is in Jesus alone. We're, this is what this Lord's Day is for. And again, not to neglect the importance and value of those other things, but this is essential. Um, all right, we want to come and we want to worship at the table. And this is, this is what, a, what a great place and passage to be in as we do that. We see the glorious, the glorious work that the glorious Christ has done and we come and celebrate at the table. Jesus sat down and, and again, this is certainly pointing us past, present, and future. We are meeting Christ presently here and, and, and Christ is, is communicating His presence with us in, in reminding us of that through these elements. He's communicating again, certainly, what He has accomplished in the full atonement that's been made, and He's pointing us forward to His return. And so we'll come and eat and drink together after we sing together. So let's, let's come, team, and, and, and sing. Let me pray as you guys are coming up. Father, thank you, for, um, thank you for the fact that Your Son is seated at Your right hand. Thank you that we we have confidence that um, that he he's not in limbo in the sense that he did most of the work and most of the sacrificing, but there's a little left that we need to make up. No, it was it's the, your your word is so clear on this point. One sacrifice for all time was enough. Help us to revel in that this morning. Purge from our minds the. The, the wrong ideas uh, that, that minimize your grace towards us in Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of it as we come and eat and drink and, and, and strengthen our uh, confidence in, in Jesus alone. We pray in his name. Amen.